Today on Something You Should Know, do you know your blood type? Do you know why you have a blood type? The answer may surprise you. Then, it may seem like the world is going to hell in a handbasket, but we're actually in an age of enlightenment. Diseases are being eradicated. Smallpox no longer exists. Polio is almost gone. Kids are going to school worldwide. 90% of people under the age of uh, 25 can read or write. It's just unprecedented in human history. There are fewer wars. Also, if you use a hair dryer, you may want to adjust how you hold it for health reasons. And swearing. Why do we swear? And why do younger women swear more than ever? As you go up in age, the proportion of men versus women is quite high. And as you go down in age, women under 25 swear just as much as men. And don't even realize that there once was this idea that women didn't swear. All this today on Something You Should Know. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to what I think is a really interesting show today. In a few moments, we'll be talking with one of my favorite people to talk to, Steven Pinker, who is a researcher and professor at Harvard. And He'll be talking about how, despite all the doom and gloom you hear in the news today, we are living in an age of enlightenment where some incredibly wonderful things are going on, and he's going to tell you what. And we'll also be talking about swearing, where swear words come from, why people swear, and throughout the entire discussion, we will not utter a single swear word. Our first topic today is blood types. Do you know your blood type? It's either A, B, A, B, or O. Blood types were discovered in 1900, and the person who discovered them won a Nobel Prize for it in 1930. Yet here we are over 100 years later, and science still does not know why we have different blood types. However, knowing it allows for life-saving blood transfusions. Before the discovery, doctors had tried blood transfusions, but unless they just happened to match up a donor with a receiver by chance, or if the donor had universal type O, the patient would die. That's because your immune system knows your blood type and recognizes another blood type as an invader. In 1952, some people were discovered to have no blood type at all. It's called the Bombay phenotype, because Bombay was where the first people with this were discovered. It is very rare, and people with no blood type must get transfusions from other people with no blood type. Even the universal type O can kill them. 
And that is something you should know. If you think there are a lot of problems and dangers and horrors in the world, you're right, of course, there are. There always are. But does that mean the world is falling apart, as some people seem to think it is? If you watch cable news, you would think that things are getting worse and worse and that we just go from one horrible thing to the next and we're on the road to self-destruction. And it creates this cynicism, this sense of dread. I know I've felt it. But then along comes Steven Pinker, one of my favorite writers. Steven is an experimental cognitive scientist. He's a professor of psychology at Harvard, and he has written some great books. His brand new one, which has already zipped up the bestseller list, is called Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. And he brings a very different message. Hi, Stephen. So you have good news, which is always welcome. Where, where did this come from? This came from two sources. One was discovering, to my surprise, that many aspects of human well-being have been increasing. That is, we are uh, living longer, uh, healthier diseases are being conquered, more uh, children are going to school worldwide, uh, the higher levels of uh, education, uh, work weeks are, are shorter, we spend less time on housework. And uh, coming across all of these graphs on uh, improving uh, life, uh, and not just in the West, but worldwide, made me realize that there's a, um, a story that most people don't appreciate uh, because the news covers what goes wrong. Uh, and uh, and they, they sh- should be put between two covers and given an explanation. It was a similar process to the one that led me to write The Better Angels of Our Nature a few years ago. The subtitle of that book was Why Violence Has Declined, uh, a, uh, an idea that just shocks people because you would guess from the news that violence is increasing. But I wrote that one when I saw uh, graph after graph showing declines in war and crime and violence against women and violence against children. And I realized that, that a story needed to be told there and an explanation. And uh, I wrote this book when I saw that uh, the news was even better than I had thought. Um, also, uh, the urge to, to write the book intensified with the events of the last couple of years, with the election of Donald Trump and the rise of authoritarian populism. Uh, a lot of people seemed very sure about what they didn't believe in, but it wasn't uh, as clear what the alternative is to uh, Trumpism and populism and religious fundamentalism and uh, a reactionary search for a golden age. If you don't believe in those things, what do you believe in? And um, I put together these uh, two uh, um, ideas with, with the thesis that the values of the Enlightenment of the uh, beginning in the 18th century, namely that we can use reason and science to improve human well-being. That's the unifying idea that, uh, that many people believe in, even though they can't put their finger on it. And it was the driver of all the progress that uh, I uh, documented in those graphs. So when you say enlightenment, you define that as what? Uh, the, uh, the enlightenment refers to the movement, mainly uh, in the uh, second, beginning in the second half of the 18th century, to use uh, reason as opposed to authority and tradition and dogma to understand the world and to attempt to uh, improve it, to improve people's lives. And we've been doing that pretty well. Yeah, with uh, obvious setbacks. uh, Progress isn't magic, so it's not that everything gets better for everyone uh, everywhere all the time. That, that, That would be impossible. But yeah, if you 
look at the, uh, if, you, if you try to measure human well-being, uh, how many of us get sick, how many of us get murdered, how many of us die in war, uh, how long do we live, how educated are we, uh, how much free time do we have, then, uh, then, then progress has occurred. It seems so counterintuitive, because when you hear people, you know, on television or just at a cocktail party talking about the world, no one talks about how great things are getting. And yet you have a whole list of things that are improving like crazy. Well, uh, people are living longer. Um, Extreme poverty has been in steep decline worldwide. So uh, about 10% of the world's population meets the definition of extreme poverty. Uh, Not so long ago, a few decades ago, it was um, 30%, so uh, 40% even three decades ago. Diseases are being eradicated. Smallpox no longer exists. Polio is almost gone. Uh, Kids are going to school worldwide. 90% of people under the age of uh, 25 can read or write. That's just unprecedented in human history. There are fewer wars. Uh, It's hard to appreciate because there is an awful one going on now, the Syrian civil war. But um, wars between countries where country A declares war on country B and they line up their tanks and they bomb each other's uh, cities and uh, their their naval ships uh, have at each other. Uh, Those are the wars that kill the most people. Uh, they've, they've been in steep decline. There are hardly any of them. Uh, and uh, overall, the rate of death in war has gone down. A rate of death in crime. Uh, the American homicide rate has fallen by uh, more than half just uh, since the 1990s. So those are a few examples. Do you think that the decline in war and, and really most of the things you just mentioned are at least partly the result of, of just a different sensibility? That when you think about war, you think about you know, two countries going at each other, killing each other's people, killing each other's people, that that maybe that seemed like a good idea at some point, but today it just seems so barbaric. I think there is something to that, even though it does sound a little vague and fuzzy, but I think there's a real, there really is something to it. Partly it's because that uh, we do value human life more. The idea of uh, sending uh, tens of thousands of soldiers uh, out of trenches so they could get machine gunned down for uh, no reason, which is what happened during World War I. Um, uh, generals are a little more squeamish about doing that. Human life is worth more, and the idea of, of kind of sending your 18-year-old men to get slaughtered for national glory uh, or to fight over a plot of land uh, is not as appealing as it used to be. But the fact that it used to be, like, like the, it did used to be, like that's what we did, that, that was a good thing to do. It does, because I'll, I'll watch, you know, old movies and newsreels and documentaries about World War I or World War II, and I sometimes sit there and go, this is the stupidest thing in the world. <laughs> I, I, totally, I, I completely agree. And that is part of uh, enlightenment. That is, you, you, you scrutinize... Uh, ways of doing things that you know your 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 fathers did and your grandfathers and your great grandfathers. You say, hey, do we have to keep doing it this way? Maybe we should give it a fresh think. And you know, it was that kind of thinking that um, abolished slavery, which is as old as civilization. The uh, I mean, the Greeks, the Romans, every ancient civilization had slaves. But it was only starting in the 18th century that people thought, hey, the, you know, the, the, these are human beings too. And just because it's a, a great labor-saving device uh, for us, but you know, what about their lives? Uh, or another example is um, uh, uh, profligate capital punishment, executing people for poaching or shoplifting or counterfeiting and doing it in grisly torture executions where you, you, know, you disembowel someone uh, in front of a, a cheering audience. Uh, starting in the Enlightenment, they 
had second thoughts about whether that was such a great idea. And that's why we have our prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment in the American um, Bill of Rights, which is, and the American Declaration of Independence and Constitution and Bill of Rights, those are like the quintessential uh, gifts of the Enlightenment. The, the, the framers were Enlightenment thinkers, and they had a lot of correspondence with their counterparts in Europe. And it was that kind of thinking that, that led to institutions like democracy and uh, bills of rights and uh, uh, the, the first hints of organizations of international cooperation. Uh, and and we, we owe a lot of these ideas to the, uh, the thinkers of the late 18th century. Is enlightenment just a, a natural prog- a progression of something? Is it, is it impossible to stop? Does it always happen? I don't think so. It's actually, uh, you know, it took uh, thousands of years for it to, to really uh, flourish in the late 18th century. Um, and, and a number of things happened to, to uh, light the spark. Partly it was the scientific revolution of the 17th century that just showed that a lot of uh, intuitions that people had had for a long time were flat wrong when you did the science, such as that the, earth, uh, that the sun went around the earth. It was partly the wars of religion. The Catholics and Protestants were uh, slaughtering each other over uh, you know, points of theological doctrine, and people thought, geez, maybe this isn't really uh, about anything. Maybe we should just uh, you know, get along and have people live good lives uh, on earth. Um, and it partly was the age of exploration. All the new continents were being discovered, and uh, people realized, my God, there's a, a whole world out there that we didn't even dream of. So all of these things, I think, uh, pushed and uh, pushed the Enlightenment, and pushing back are features of human nature that uh, the Enlightenment had to overcome, like our tribalism, the idea that it isn't all of humanity that should be flourishing, but just uh, our tribe in in uh, combat with other tribes. Or authoritarianism, the idea that we need a strong leader, uh, a, a king, uh, uh, and that um, uh, the, the, the king or leader or uh, dictator kind of embodies the goodness of the, and virtue of the people, so we don't need laws to uh, constrain him because uh, he just, he just uh, embodies what's best in us, as opposed to democracy. So the, and these things are continuing to push back. There's always been a a tug of war between the Enlightenment and various counter-Enlightenment ideologies. My guest is best-selling author Steven Pinker. His book is Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. And I have a really great idea. I'd like you to get the audiobook version of Steven's book, Enlightenment Now, for free. This is like a $38 audiobook, and it's yours free. You see, Audible is offering you, a listener to Something You Should Know, a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com something and browse their unmatched selection of audio programs and audiobooks, then download a title for free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com something or text the word something to 500-500 to get started today. Audible members get a credit every month, good for any audiobook in the store, regardless of price. And unused credits roll over to the next month. Start a 30-day trial, and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com something, or text the word something to 500-500. If you're enjoying this discussion with Steven Pinker, I know you're going to like his book. It's a bestseller, and it can be yours for free right now. Go to audible.com slash something or text the word something to 500-500 and get started today.
If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, well, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on something you should know. Indeed.com something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. So, Stephen, isn't it interesting that we have this enlightenment, and you've, you've mentioned so many things that, that have happened, that, you know, fewer people are dying, we're living longer, all these things, and yet... It's not the perception of many people because it's not that we celebrate it much. And in fact, what we do see when we turn on the television is how horrible everything is. You would think that as we become more enlightened, we would like all like pat each other on the back and say that instead of saying, yeah, but look how horrible everything is. That, that's right. We, we, uh, we pocket our good fortune. We kind of take it for granted. I mean, how, how many of us um, ever think the thought, wow, I can turn on a tap and clean water comes out and I can drink it and I won't get cholera? These are amazing accomplishments. And in poor parts of the world, they, they can take them for granted. They get poisoned by their, their water and they, they drink their own waste. But uh, we have been so fortunate that these have been around and they work so well that we don't think, hey, these are, these are great human accomplishments. And instead, we, I think we do a lot of moaning about what's going wrong. And, and of course, things will always go wrong, and it's good to be aware of them. But, um, but we don't realize what the accomplishments that are responsible for our uh, so many good things in life. Even something like little, little pleasures and of everyday life. Like when I was a student... If I wanted to see a great classic film, you know, The Seventh Seal or Casablanca or a Hitchcock film, you'd have to wait years for it to show up in a local repertory theater or maybe on late night TV in a little black and white set. Now you can stream it on demand. So even access to culture. And it's, uh, we, we all complain about how horrible social media are and the internet and what it's doing to us, and the filter bubbles and the bullying. But we never stop, pause to think about why we adopt these technologies in the first place, namely there are all these ways in which they do make our lives better. 
So what's the takeaway here? What's the, the big so what? I mean, it's, it's nice to, to take a moment to, to realize that things aren't as bad as maybe we are led to believe, but so what? The, the, the takeaway is that um, we should realize what we're in danger of losing, maybe the institutions of democracy and regulated markets and uh, organizations of international cooperation that have uh, prevented World War III from happening and that have um, uh, given us um, the, the uh, benefits we take for granted. But also to, to uh, keep in mind that uh, the problems that are unsolved, and that there are plenty of them, um, are solvable. If we remember that uh, by applying reason and science to our problems, um, we can gradually succeed. Our, our ancestors did before us. That's why we live the, uh, the good life, the, well, at least why the good things that we enjoy came into being. And although there are plenty of problems and some of them are really severe, the mindset should be these are our problems that, that, uh, that we can solve. Even if the solutions themselves bring new problems, which they then have to be solved in their turn, but we have to take a uh, constructive problem-solving mindset to the uh, dilemmas that we continue to face. As you look at this enlightenment from the late 1800s going forward, is there any reason to think it will stop, or does it just keep going? Do we, do we become more and more enlightened and do more and more great things? Well, it, um, I, you know, I think some, some of the positive developments could, uh, could keep going. There, there are amazing um, breakthroughs in, in, possible in the pipeline in uh, biomedical research, uh, therapies for cancer, treatments for Alzheimer's, uh, ways of fixing uh, horrible inherited diseases. There may be fantastic breakthroughs in the energy pipeline. Uh, just just uh, day before yesterday, uh, there was a breakthrough announced at MIT in fus- nuclear fusion, uh, which had always seemed a dream, you know, 30 years away and it always will be, but uh, it may be just 15 years away. But is it the, is it the concern, the complaining, the worry, the, 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 the you know, this administration or that, that group or whatever, that that's what fuels some of this? Because... Because as you look back through this age of enlightenment from the late 1800s, I imagine that all during that, people were complaining then and up until now about all the things that are wrong. And does that that complaining and worry about all the things that are wrong fuel the enlightenment? Well, yes, to, to some extent that it does. Um, there, there is a danger of complacency, and, and if we're not aware of a problem, then we'll never try to solve it. Um, I, I just argue in enlightenment now that, that it can go way too far in the direction of, of fatalism and doom-mongering and uh, radicalism, that, that if too much pessimism, we, everything's a crisis, everything's an existential threat, everything is the, uh, the end of this and the dawn of a post-something era, that uh, people can say, oh, these are just intractable, we'll never solve them, let's just uh, have, a good, uh, have a good time day to day. Yeah. Well, so where so does that come from? There has to be an from? optimal amount of pessimism. Where does this come from? I mean, you could argue that we're already there, that a lot of people believe that it's too late. Uh, we've gone to hell in a handbasket, that our president is an idiot. And, you know, you never used to say things like our president is an idiot because he was the president. But and, and people of opposing political parties could still be respectful of each other. And, and it seems like a lot of that is just gone and, and not coming back. Yes, there is a, and I mean, you mentioned uh, President Trump, and he, above all, rode to office on a uh, 
narrative of gloom and decline and decadence. He rode that pessimism to, into office. And part of the problem was that the uh, people on the, the, the liberals, the centrists, didn't have a counter-narrative. They weren't willing to say, uh, actually, things aren't that bad. People are you know, moving back into cities. Unemployment is uh, you know, pretty low. Uh, the, the crime rate is low. Uh, there was so much pessimism on both sides that uh, uh, Trump had the field to himself. Certainly, the general pessimism about society is not new. Uh, in the 19th century, uh, there were plenty of, of uh, philosophers and artists who were saying uh, uh, the country is doomed, it's decadent, uh, any day now it'll collapse. Um, and, uh, and it became very popular among a lot of intellectuals and professors and artists and writers. Um, there was a moment in the, uh, the post-war years after World War II where there was a, a great deal of American optimism. Uh, there was, uh, we were going to fight poverty. We were, the United Nations was going to bring world peace, um, and then then a lot of cynicism uh, came in in the 60s with the war in Vietnam, the discovery of uh, so much poverty and racism in the United States, and it turned into the pendulum swung so that uh, most uh, intellectuals and academics started to kind of hate the United States to to say that uh, and the West more generally. Well, in this atmosphere of cynicism and doom and gloom, where everybody thinks that, you know, we're all going to hell in a handbasket and, you know, there's no hope for humanity, that you've come out and proven that that's just not the way it is. That may be where the focus is, but it's not the reality that we are in this enlightenment period. There are so many great things going on, and, and it's great that you especially have come out and said this because you have such a big following, and it's such a great message to hear. It, it is amazing when you when you step back and you uh, not only look at at uh, graphs and data, which I've tried to do, but even if you think back, you know, not so long ago uh, about our recent history, you know, in the 1970s, which a lot of people are nostalgic for, we had uh, double-digit inflation, rates of inflation of 15 percent, 18 percent, and double-digit unemployment. Uh, the so-called misery index is what you get when you add them together. We had uh, you had to line up around the block to get gasoline. Uh, people worried whether there was going to be enough heating oil to last the winter. So um, part of the problem is just not to be nostalgic for, for the good old days. As Franklin Pierce Adams said, the main, best explanation for the good old days is a bad memory. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, well, that's human nature is to remember the good and forget the bad. because it, it, That's literally true in that there are studies of memory that show that as uh, events fade into more distant memory, a lot of their negative uh, emotional colorings tends to fade. So we forget how awful it was. Well, it's a good message you bring, and I appreciate you spending some time talking about it. Steven Pinker has been my guest, and his new book is called Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. There's a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you so we'll much. Thanks again. for having me on. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. 
She goes beyond the headlines, so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. You learn from a very early age that it is not polite. In fact, it is rude to swear. It's tactless. It's what, it's what sailors do. But not you, not well-mannered people. Well-mannered people don't swear. Except they do. Most people do swear. But why? Why do we have this handful of words that is set aside that we can pull out when we need to to, to be shocking and to make a point? Because these words have this special, naughty power. Well, here to discuss this is Melissa Moore. She's author of a book called Holy Sh—you get the idea— A Brief History of Swearing. And the reason I didn't say the word, and by the way, we will not be swearing as we discuss swearing throughout this, in case you have sensitive ears, because we we don't want to have to put that little red E next to the podcast in iTunes, which you have to do if you use explicit language. Anyway, so hi, Melissa. What are the statistics about who swears? How many people swear? Well, it's interesting because the statistics are a bit hard to come by because people don't like to admit how much they swear to people conducting surveys. But certain surveys have found that 90% of people swear every day. So that's about 10% of people who don't swear every day. And then it's not clear how many of those people never swear. Well, that surprises me, actually. I I would have guessed 90% of people swear sometimes, but that 90% of people swear every day? That is what this particular study that I'm thinking of has, has found, yes. And the percentage of swear words in the average person's conversation, well, ranges from zero to about 3%, the average being uh, 0.7% of words in a conversation being swear words. And 0.7% doesn't sound like very much, but that's actually sort of the same number of um, first-person plural pronouns, so words like we, us, ours. And so if you think about it in those terms, that is kind of a lot. It is a lot. So what makes a swear word so naughty? How did that, how does that come about? A swear word is a word that has a kind of power to shock and offend that's in excess of its literal meaning. And it comes from the way swear words access taboos, you know, so things that we find sort of horrifying, but also things we find sacred and, you know, so that it's, they've been, are now and have been in the past, you know, about religion, about sex, about, you know, racism. It's all, it's the kind of really big, important cultural sort of themes. They access those in ways that that other words can't, and that's where they get their power from. But do we know, like, the the F word, where did it come from? And and why is it so, like, it's like at the top of the list of things, there is a hierarchy of swear words that some are, you know, acceptable or or at least less less objectionable, but, but, you know, pick one and, and, you know, where did it come from? 
Well, the F word is is interesting because it's an extremely old word. Like we have records of it in people's names, actually, from uh, the 13th century. But for about 300 years, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that bad, given that it was appearing in people's names. And it's only about the sort of 16th century where people start to get a concept of sex being more, more of a private thing, which has to do with the way people's houses were, were constructed. Like people just didn't have the same privacy that we have today. And so sex was something that was not done openly, but it just wasn't as big a deal. And as we get uh, changing houses, changing exceptions of privacy, the F word becomes much more obscene until you get to the Victorian era, where that's the kind of height of the F word's power, and it disappears completely from public discourse. I've heard that swearing does have some therapeutic effect, like if you hit your thumb with a hammer and swear that that does something for the pain. Yes, yes, that's true. That's a very interesting uh, uh, interesting study that, yes, you can stick your hand in ice water longer if you're swearing than if you're not swearing. But then people have also found that have done further studies that show that if you're a habitual swearer, like you swear, oh, you know, you're one of those three percenters, it, it, you, uh, it doesn't work for you. You can't be overusing them. They still have to have that power for you. I know people who swear and swear a lot, and probably think that they can't control it, that it's just part of their personality. That's who they are. They like to swear. But in cases where they swear, you know, if their priest or their grandmother was standing there, they could control themselves. They could they could stop themselves. Yes, and that's very interesting in terms of how we use swear words. You know, swear words are stored and processed differently from other language in the brain. They're more closely connected to the limbic system. But of course, they are also under our conscious control. And so when you, you know, when you do hit your finger with a hammer, you can, you might want to say one thing, but if your grandma's there, you're going to say something else, probably. Um, And so there, yeah, there's this interesting kind of connection between almost automatic language, but also this control. It does seem that gender plays a role in swearing, that somehow it's more acceptable for men to swear and that you shouldn't swear, you know, in front of a lady and and, and it's kind of sexist in a way. That's, that's the perception. That's a really interesting point because, yeah, for me, I'm 44. And so for people of my generation, I think that is true. And you do get people have, of course, done studies about this, too, and sort of looking at which genders swear. And as you go up in age, the proportion of men versus women is quite high. And as you go down in age, sort of women under 25 swear just as much as men um, and kind of don't even realize that there once was this idea that women didn't swear. So it seems extremely generational to me. Doesn't swearing in and of itself send a message. I mean, haven't we, at least till recently, thought of people who swear as, you know, lower class, lower socioeconomic, lower education, that, you know, proper, well-educated people don't swear? Well, that's interesting, too, because it is extremely context-dependent. Like, there are, there are some studies that show that if you're giving sort of testimony or you're a politician and you swear, people find what you're saying more believable because there's this association, which is for the most part true, that swear words kind of really come from the heart and that if you're swearing, you're expressing your true emotions about something you feel really strongly about. So it can sort of make testimony more believable. 
But yeah, on the other hand, there are also studies that say if you're in a in a work meeting and you start swearing, people will think worse of you because <laughs> you don't understand the you don't understand the context and you know why are you doing that? That's not appropriate. So yeah, it kind of it it can be yeah it goes goes either way. I think. When I think of swear words, I think of them as falling into the category of slang, but. Unlike a lot of slang, they don't change. I mean, the swear words today are the swear words from when my parents were younger and and when their parents were younger. I mean, the swear words pretty much are etched in stone. No, and in fact, they they um, some of the swear words, you know, more mild ones, you know, religious ones, talking about God and things, you know, those were swear words thousands of years ago, you know, Um, and that's, I think, because swear words access and get their power from these taboos that are are still the same and that, you know, people have been thinking about and and really invested in religion for forever. And, you know, also sex has been a big issue. So these, since these these sort of subjects don't change, the, the words themselves tend to change very slowly. The swear words that relate to God and religion those seem to have lost some of their power in the sense that they're not really considered swear words anymore. I mean, hell and damn, you know, they're said on television, uh, kids say them, and, and, and there isn't the, oh my God, you can't say that, as there was maybe, I don't know, 50 years ago. Yeah, they they really have have declined in power, I think, over the past, yeah, sort of 40 or, or 50 years Um and yeah, they're they're quite common. I think, and depending, of course, on how religious you are, you know, some people some people say that that's more offensive than the F word in terms of what's really important. And and but but yeah, for the most part, people people think it's it's very mild. And I think like OMG kind of thing. I think the study was something like that's twenty four percent of all women swearing that women say that you know just a ton. Do other languages have similar swear words? Are there any languages that that there are no swear words? That's an that's a very interesting question because the, people used to think that Japanese didn't have swear words and that Akan didn't have swear words. Uh, Akan spoken in Ghana, but they do. They just tend not to use, and they have similar ones about sex and you know bodily functions. But they they tend not to use it as much because they're in Japanese, for example, if you want to insult someone, there are so many different ways to insult people. Like there are about, I can't remember exactly, 10 or 11 different ways to say you. And so if you use the wrong form of you, you can give someone a pretty deadly insult without resorting to, you know, the Japanese equivalent of the F word. Um so if you if you look, I think pretty much every language in the world, at least all the ones we know of so far, <laughs> have, do have swear words that are similar. I mean, some you know they they do vary. Japanese also is more concerned with you know face saving, and so it's it's worse to call someone a fool in Japanese than it is in English, and it's worse to call someone old. There are more insults about age, um, and in you know. Uh, in Dutch, they, for some reason, have a lot of illness swear words. German, you know, has more poop swear words. Like, each each language has uh, things they like to swear about. But, uh, but yeah, they, they definitely all have swear words. And, and they use them in the same way, like to express 
either pain or emotion or or do they use them in any other way? No, I think they they use them in the same way. Yeah, it's it is a universal it's a universal thing, a thing that ties us all together. Well, it's interesting that a lot of people in every culture swear, so it's it's a fairly universal thing, and yet it's still considered somehow taboo. And if we made it less taboo, if swearing was more acceptable, it wouldn't be swearing, and then it wouldn't serve its purpose, because it needs to be taboo in order to be powerful. Yeah, well, it is interesting, but I think you, I think you had the the progression right there. I mean, we we do need to have them, you know, out of bounds, or they do lose their power, like the habitual swearers who, you know, it doesn't help them to put their hands in the ice water when they swear. You know, it it I, they do the words do lose their power, and I think only only are useful to us if if we're not saying them all the time. And it would be interesting to do a study to see whether, you know, if you say, if, you're, if you've got your hands in the ice water and you're saying a religious, a mild religious oath versus, you know, the F word, if you can, if, if there's a difference in time there. But, you know, if, if you, you, I sort of think that the F word would be more useful, but, but uh, that, that I don't know. Well, it's interesting, and really this conversation has gotten me thinking about this, that we, we all play a role in perpetuating this, this really a myth of these words are so offensive. I mean, these are words we've all heard since we were children. In fact, they were even more interesting when we were children. We've known them forever, but we pretend to be so offended by them. Uh, well, and maybe people really are offended by them, but but really, uh, you know, it's not like it's a big. Oh, I've never heard. Well, that's just so so shocking, and it's not shocking because we've heard these words a million times since we were seven years old. But we perpetuate this story about how these words are so offensive to help those words maintain their power. So when we use them, they're so offensive. Melissa Moore has been my guest. She's author of the book, Holy Shh, A Brief History of Swearing. And there's a link to her book in the show notes for this episode. Thanks, Melissa. Well, thank you for talking to me. If you blow dry your hair, you do so at your own risk. And it's not just about, you know, making sure your hair doesn't get sucked into the motor, which, you know, is no picnic. And also, you know, not to drop it into a sink full of water and then reach in and pick it up and get electrocuted. There's another risk, and that is radiation. According to David O. Carpenter, director of the Institute for Health and Environment, every electrical appliance in your home emits electric and magnetic fields of energy. Most of them are pretty low, but some appliances, like hair dryers, emit higher levels of this electromagnetic radiation. The levels are highest right where the cord connects into the device. And putting just a foot or two of distance between you and that connection can reduce the radioactive levels to zero. Dr. Carpenter says we should take a step back from appliances like microwaves, coffee makers, washing machines, those kind of things when they're in use, and hold that blow dryer a little farther from your head. And that is something you should know. I've been getting so many likes for the Something You Should Know page on Facebook and Twitter lately, so thank you for that, and if you haven't done so, please do so. If you like us and then you follow us, then you'll get updates of when new episodes post, which is every Sunday night and Wednesday night, 
And also, uh, other content that we don't have in the show, you'll get on social media. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.